this evening. Now, the Lord Jesus said in this passage of Scripture, there were two men who were building houses. One man he calls a wise man because in building his house, he dug down through the earth and founded it on the bedrock underneath. The other man is called a foolish man, and he's called that because in building his house, he merely placed it on the surface of the sand. Why? I don't know. It doesn't say. Maybe somebody convinced him that would be a good way to build. Maybe, maybe he was in a hurry to get moved in. But in any case, when both of the houses were completed and the people had moved into them, the rains came, the winds came, the storms blew and beat upon the houses. And the house that was founded upon the rock stood firm in the midst of the gale, while the house that was on the sand fell. And notice Jesus said, great was the fall of it. Now, I, I don't think think you'll have to screw more than three brain cells in to figure out the answer to this question. But what was the determining factor there? What was the one thing that allowed one house to stand firm while the other one fell? It was the foundation. Exactly right. It was the foundation that made all the difference. Now, the Lord Jesus in this passage is not particularly trying to teach anybody how to build a physical house on this planet. But the context of the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, the Lord Jesus Christ has been explaining that we have a choice in what we put our faith and, and trust upon for our salvation. Earlier in this passage, remember what he says in verses 13 and 14, entering in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth unto destruction and many there be which go in thereat because straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life and few there be that find it. Jesus says there are two gates to enter in. There are two roads to travel by, but there's only one way that leads to eternal life, to heaven. Here in this passage of Scripture, he says that we have a choice of two foundations. Two foundations upon which you and I can choose to base our faith and our hope and our trust for our eternal destiny and our eternal life. Two foundations. What are they? Well, we either base our faith and trust like the foolish man upon a false foundation, or we base our faith and trust like the wise man upon the firm foundation. Now, I want us tonight to examine those two foundations together this evening and jot down the scriptures that we give to you tonight regarding those things. Let's start first with some of the false foundations that many people have chosen to base their faith and trust upon in this life. If, I would ask you a question tonight at the outset of the message. If you were to die right now, I mean, each one of you here tonight, if you were to die right now, your heart quit beating, your lungs quit beating, your eyes went shut in this life for the last time, and you stood at the gate of heaven and you knocked there and you wanted to be able to get in, and someone from inside heaven cried out to you, why shall we let you in here? Why should you be allowed to come in? How would you answer that question? Don't answer me out loud, but I do want you to answer that question in your heart right now. Again, if you died right now, you stood at heaven's gate, you knocked on that gate and wanted to get in, and somebody asked you why you should be allowed to come in, how would you answer that question? Because you see, your answer to that question reveals the foundation upon which you are basing your faith for eternal life. Now, there are many people who would answer that question this way. Well, I'm doing the best I can, preacher. I'm helping my fellow man. I'm being kind to my neighbor. Hopefully, I'm doing well enough to get into heaven. And many of those people believe that because that's what they've been taught in their place of worship. Most man-made religions are very easily recognizable because when you look at what they base the faith of anybody upon for any kind of eternal life, it's based on their works. In fact, some of those churches will say that it is absolutely impossible for a person to know that for sure. Well, if you were here Sunday morning in the Sunday morning message you know better than that how many chapters are in first john do you remember all the way back to sunday morning yes five how many times in those five chapters of the little book called first john does god use the word no referring to as in you can know you are saved 32 times remember first john 5 13 these things have i written unto you that believe on the name of the son of god that ye may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Listen, any person, pastor, priest, or pope who says you cannot know for sure if you died today or 10 years from now you're going to go to heaven is lying to you. But the problem is with man-made religion is that they'll say, well, if you could know, then the, if you want to have a hope of getting to eternal life, it has to do with how good you are, how many good works you've done. In fact, I remember one pastor I preached for in, in South Central Pennsylvania who told me that as a boy he was raised in a denomination where the pastor preached that nobody could know whether they were going to go to heaven until they died first. That seemed a little late to me to find out, but in any case, that's uh, what he said. And that, that when a person died, God had up in the heavens a huge scale. On one side of the scale, he would have placed all the good works a person had done in life. On the other side of the scale, he would place all the bad works a person had done in life. And if the good ones outweighed the bad ones, then you got to go to heaven. If that was the honest truth, folks, we'd be in serious trouble, every one of us. 
There's not a one of us in our lifetimes whose good works are ever going to outweigh <clears throat> our bad works. In other words, so many religions go on a pilgrimage, keep the sacraments, confess to a priest, keep the golden rule, keep the Ten Commandments, pray so many times in a particular direction. All of those things involve our works and that hopefully our works will get us into eternal life or have something to do with saving us. The question is, does the Bible say that anybody can get to heaven by their works? Absolutely not. Jot these verses down. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 say, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, listen, not of works, lest any man should boast. Titus 3, 5 says, It is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Galatians 2, verse 16 says, For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. The Bible makes it very plain to us tonight. There is no way that any one of us can earn or merit an entrance into heaven. Look right here in the very same chapter, just a few verses before our text, Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. For many will come in that day, speaking of the great white throne judgment, saying, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name have done men any, what? Wonderful works. Verse 23, Matthew 7. Then will I profess unto them, what? I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. According to the word of God, it is absolutely, positively impossible for anyone, anywhere, to earn or merit or do enough good works to get into heaven. Some people say, what about the book of James, preacher? It says their faith without works is dead. So that means we've got to have good works to help. No, no, no. Listen, read the entire book, all right? Don't just read one chapter or one verse out of one chapter. Read the entire book because you'll find that what the book of James teaches us is that not we are not that we are saved by works, but we are saved to do good works. It involves even what we preached about on Sunday. There are a lot of people who want to claim to be saved and don't believe ever really have been. Why? Because they have no evidence of it. The works that should follow a person who has been saved are absent from their life. And that's what the Bible says when it says faith without works is dead. If a man has, says he has faith but he doesn't have works, can faith save him? It's talking about the fact this is a person who's who's saying, well, you know, it's 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 my my good, you know, I'm a believer, uh, but uh, you, don't mind the fact that I don't have anything in my life that shows that I am. There's nothing there that is evidence of my salvation, but I really am a believer. No, listen, I have faith. No, listen, true faith results by the power of God in a changed life and works that honor and glorify the one who saved us. It is impossible for anybody to get to heaven by their works. If your faith and trust is in your works, your faith and trust is in a false foundation. Another false foundation is that of baptism. When I ask some people that question I asked you a few minutes ago, there are people that say, well, yeah, I was baptized as a baby in a Catholic church. Or I was sprinkled on in a Methodist church. Or I was poured on in a Presbyterian church. Or I was dunked in a Baptist church. One little boy said to me, preacher, my pastor baptized me four times. What do you think about that? I said, I think he's trying to drown you. There are lots of people who believe that somehow their baptism is going to wash away their sin and get them into eternal life. Does the Bible tell us that baptism does anything to save us from our sin or grant us eternal life? And again, the answer is absolutely not. The Bible is very plain that baptism does not save anybody. It is, rather, a testimony, a visible testimony to all who see, sees a person baptized that that person being baptized has already been saved and that they're identifying their faith in Christ by that baptism and that that baptism is a symbol of two things. Number one, of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why we ordinary Baptists believe in baptism by immersion, not sprinkling water or pouring water or something else. Why? Well, you don't, you don't go out to bury somebody in the cemetery and set the casket down and wipe it with a dirty rag and call it buried. Nor do you sprinkle a handful of dust over it and call it buried. Nor do you pour a pitcher or a bucket of dirt over it and call it buried. You dig a hole, you put the thing underground, you cover it over with earth, and it's buried. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't have a handful of dust sprinkled over him as he lay on the surface of the ground, etc. He was buried in the tomb. And he was in that tomb for, for three days and three nights until he came out of that tomb. And the Bible tells us that baptism is that picture of that death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It also says this, I'm dying to the old 
sinful life I used to live, and I'm being raised again to a brand new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the examples that are given to us in the Scriptures. Remember the story of the Philippian jailer? Our puppets tell that story. They don't understand why God had to send an earthquake to get Paul and Silas out of jail that night. I mean, they could have gotten out on their own eventually, right? All they had to do was keep singing like they were until they found the right key. Hey, they were only behind a few bars, right? And in any case, Music City's just north of here must be creeping in. Anyway, the fact, fact, fact is, no, listen, uh, what were the, but the earthquake took place. Uh, the jailer awoke. He thought everybody had escaped, and he was going to kill himself when Paul cried from inside the prison. Ever thought about that? Jailer's outside the prison looking at the open door. Paul's the sword. He's going to kill himself, and Paul and Silas, who were in the deepest dungeon of the prison, cry out, don't harm yourself. We're all here. Come and see how they know what he was doing. Well, the jailer called for a light and came in before them and fell down and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Notice they didn't say, do it the best you can. Help your fellow man. Be kind to your neighbor. And hopefully you'll do enough good works that way. You're bad ones. Nor did they say, you have to join our church or get baptized. They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And the Bible says he did believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, took them home to his house, watched their beating marsh, got his whole household out of bed, and had them share the gospel with his entire household, who also then believed on Christ. And then and only then were they all baptized in testimony of that salvation. Look at the other example that's given to us also in Acts chapter 8. You have got the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember that story? Riding along in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah, not understanding what he's reading. Paul, uh, Philip comes alongside, and he's invited into the chariot, and he sits down, and he preaches Christ to him, and the man believes on the Lord Jesus because they come to a body of water, and the Ethiopian eunuch says to Philip, here is water, what doth hinder me from being baptized? And Philip said, listen, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. You see, before that man could put one foot in the water to be baptized, he had first to have put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was his faith in Christ that saved him, not the water baptism. If you look in the scriptures, you'll find, except for the thief on the cross, every other person who's, who was saved in the New Testament then was baptized in obedience to the command of the Lord. The Bible tells us that we're to be, be, be baptized. He told his disciples in Matthew 28, verse 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. What did he say next? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So baptism is important. If you've been saved, but you haven't yet been baptized, you're disobedient to the Lord. You will never be the Christian that God wants you to be until you obey him and get baptized. You say, well, I'm a little apprehensive about that. I'm apprehensive about the pastor putting me down in that baptismal pool under that water. Well, look, I promise he's not going to hold you under until the little bubbles quit coming up, okay? He didn't want to drown you. He wants you to go on living for the Lord. But understand that even being scripturally baptized by immersion does not wash away any more sin than if you rub a double double Mr. Bubble in the tub at home. Baptism is a false foundation. Other people will say, well, preacher, I believe if I died, I'd go to heaven. Why? I'm a Baptist. I'm a Presbyterian, I'm Episcopalian, I'm a Catholic, I'm a Mormon, I'm a Jehovah's Witness or whatever. In other words, their faith and trust obviously is in their church attendance or their denominational affiliation, and they think that's what's going to get them to heaven. That too is a false foundation. Church attendance or church membership cannot get anybody to heaven. Now wait, wait, does the Bible say that a person ought to be a member of a church? Absolutely. Again, I said on Sunday morning, if you look at what the Scriptures say in the New Testament, you, every person you can find in the New Testament who got saved got baptized and then identified themselves as a member of a local visible assembly of believers, the church of Corinth or Philippi or Antioch or Jerusalem. To whom do you think the letters of the churches were written? Not the building, not the property, but to the people. That's the church. Just like you cannot be a godly Christian that God wants you to be, if you're not baptized, you also won't be what God wants you to be unless you're a member of a good Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church. Why? It is through the local church that the Lord has chosen to do His work in this world. It is the local church that ordains the pastors, that sends out the missionaries, that, uh, that does the work of the Lord. That's the work of the church. And that means you need to be a member of that church and a functioning member, as we mentioned, I think, this week already earlier. If you have a body, your body has members. Those members aren't just supposed to drag along behind you and then take up space or be uh, extra weight. They are supposed to be functioning members, and every believer ought to be functioning with the talents and the abilities that God has given to you for his honor and for his glory. Look, the Bible tells us that church membership cannot save anybody. Where do you get those things more? Well, if you go to what Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, you remember this passage from Sunday morning? 
Galatians 6, verses 14 and following, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he talks about the fact neither circumcision nor uncircumcision availeth anything but what? A new creature. You remember what I, I mentioned to you, why Paul brought up circumcision and uncircumcision there? Because in his day, it wasn't Baptist versus Presbyterian or some other denomination. It was Jewish believer versus Gentile believer. And it was the Jewish believers that were telling the Gentiles who were coming to Christ, you're not really saved unless you get circumcised, keep the ceremonial laws and the feast days and attend as a member of the synagogue. And Paul clearly says, look, it's not whether you're a member of the synagogue or not that gets you into heaven. It's not having your name on a church roll that can get you into heaven. It's having your name on the roll in the Lamb's Book of Life in heaven above that gets you into heaven. It is not joining a church that saves you. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 4 spoke to the woman at the well. Do you remember that story? The Lord Jesus was going through Samaria, stopped in the city of Sychar, and while the disciples went on into town, I don't know, maybe to McDonald's to get a Happy Meal or something, I don't know. The, the Bible says Jesus sat at the well and was resting, and a woman came with her water jug to get water for her family. The Lord Jesus struck up a conversation with her. She thought that was unusual anyway for a Jew to be willing to talk to a Samaritan, and the Lord Jesus began to talk to her about how she could have living water. And you remember, she said, well, where can I get this water so I don't have to come here and draw again? He said, tell you what, go home and bring your husband back, I'll tell you both. She said, sir, I have no husband. He said, ma'am, you've answered correctly. You've had five husbands. And the fellow you're living with right now is not your husband. And she said, sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. She said, I've got a religious question for you. She said, your fathers, the Jews, say that in the temple at Jerusalem is where men ought to worship. Our fathers worship here in this mountain. She meant Mount Gerizim right outside of the city where the Samaritans had a temple where they worshiped God. She said, who is right? The Lord Jesus himself replied to her that the day will come when they will neither in Jerusalem or in this mountain worship God. For God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Even the Lord Jesus said himself, it isn't this church or that church, this denomination or that denomination that can get you into heaven. It isn't our church attendance. It isn't how often you go to church. Now, wait a minute. Does the Bible say we ought to be members of a Bible-preaching church? Absolutely. If you live in this area, you don't know where one is. I think if you'll ask Pastor Swanky, he could probably suggest one. And the folks here would be happy to have you come and study the Word of God. But even being a member of a good Bible-believing church like this one does not get you or me into heaven. If your faith is in your works, it's in a false foundation. If your faith is in your baptism, it's a false foundation. If your faith is in your church, it's a false foundation. You know, there are a lot of churches that don't even preach the truth anymore. They used to, but they don't. There was a lady like that that came to my father in one of the meetings that he preached in. She said, Brother Webb, I, I go to a church that used to preach the gospel, but now we've got a young peach fuzz preacher out of the local religious cemetery, uh, seminary who... I said that on purpose, who, who uh, doesn't believe in the virgin birth and doesn't believe in the blood atonement and doesn't believe uh, all of that. And, and, and she said, I, I know we really shouldn't stay in that church, but we just can't leave. My father said, ma'am, why not? She said, you wouldn't understand. He said, try me. She got tears in her eyes. And she said, well, if you must know, granddaddy's buried out back in the church in the church cemetery. And we can't bear to go away and leave granddaddy out there all alone. And my father smiled and leaned a little closer and said, well, then dig him up and bring him with you, but get in the good Bible-believing church. The pastor heard him say, said, amen, we'll buy the lot next door and start a cemetery. Bring him on. There were a couple of older ladies that approached me after a, a, a meeting one night near the end of a week of meetings in the eastern shore of Maryland. They said, preacher, we've, we've heard more, more scripture this week than we've heard in our church in years. We haven't heard a gospel message like that in years. Uh, they were from the church right across the street from the church I was preaching in. I won't tell you what denomination it was. That's not what's important. But I said, ladies, could I ask you a question? What does that say? If the church you've been going to all this time, you haven't heard a gospel message in so many years, and there's a church right across the street like this one where you can hear it, where the word of God is being preached. They said, we never thought of that. The next thing I knew, when I was walking out of the building, I heard him asking the pastor what time the services were on Sunday. They were going to start coming to the church there. Look, there's no excuse to stay in an old dead church that doesn't preach the truth of the word of God. God's Word tells us, even though joining a good Bible-believing church cannot get you or me into heaven, that's a false foundation. So our works are a false foundation. Our baptism is a false foundation. Our church membership is a false foundation. Our denominational attendance, church attendance can't get you to heaven. What else is a false foundation? How about feelings or experiences? Feelings or experiences. What do you mean by that? Well, I asked some people that question. I asked you a little earlier, and they said, oh, yes, I know I'm going to heaven. Why is that? Well, because I, 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 I was clinically dead once. 
And I went, I, I, I went to the end of a long, dark tunnel, and there were bright lights and bright beings there that told me they weren't ready for me yet, and they sent me back again. So I knew I was going to go to heaven. Is that what it means to be saved? One fellow was asked about his salvation experience. He said he was walking under the stars one night, and he looked up at the moon, and he thought he saw the face of God in the moon, and he had a deep peace in his heart, and he knew he was born again. Is that what it means to be born again? Some claim they've seen a statue of Mary with bleeding hands. Others, they've had a vision of Jesus at the foot of their bed one night. That could have been the extra pepperoni on your pizza you had before you went to bed. I kind of agree with Ebenezer Scrooge in the Christmas story that, you know, your, your, your senses can be affected by your appetite, what you ate. You know, it could be a lump of, of something. Anyway, the, the fact of the matter is that, look, I'll tell you this. The devil is more than happy to give anybody any feeling or experience they are looking for because he knows they'll die and go to hell the whole time thinking they were going to go to heaven because they had an experience. Oh, I walked down an aisle in a church and the preacher got me to repeat something over and over again until I started stumbling and stammering around. I said, I got the spirit or somebody hit me in the forehead and I fell over in the aisle and barked like a dog or laughed hysterically or rolled around in immodest postures. That's really the Holy Spirit. Look, fact of the matter is there are people today who are looking for feelings and experiences. Is that what the word of God says that you and I are supposed to be trusting? No. Again, what did it say? Uh, what's it say in 1 John chapter 5 verses 10 through 13? He that believeth on the Son of God hath a witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Verse 13 again, these things have I what? written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. I've actually taken people to the Bible and shown them that their feeling and experience, that the charismatic experience is not for today. Oh, but wait, doesn't that verse in the book of Mark say these signs will follow them which believe and one of them is they will speak with other tongues? Okay, if you want to believe that's for today, then I need to ask you, when's the last time you drank poison and didn't die? When's the last time you handled a viper, handled a viper and were bitten and didn't die? When's the last time you healed somebody that was sick or raised somebody from the dead. Well, wait a minute, preacher. Why do you ask me that? Because those things are listed in that same verse. And the Bible's not a smorgasbord. You don't pull one little phrase out of verse and say, well, I think this is for today and the rest of it I don't like, so I'll leave it. You either believe all of it or you don't believe any of it. You say, well, preacher, you're saying it's no good and you're saying the whole thing's in that verse. Yes, why? Because the Bible tells us that the sign gifts that are listed there, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, passed away when that which was perfect was come. Well, that means when Jesus comes. No, if it was talking about Jesus, then the word that there would be a masculine noun. It's not as a neuter noun. It's referring to something, not someone. What do we have as a thing that is perfect, that is of God? It's his word. We trust his word. 1 Corinthians 13 is talking about how God revealed himself to people by visions, by dreams, by prophecy. And then he says those things have passed away. Why? Because the word of God has come. Heaven and earth may pass away, but my word shall not pass away, Matthew 24, 35 says. God's word tells us the truth. We can go to the scriptures. We don't base our faith on some feeling. What did Peter have to say about this? Jot this down. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. We have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. For we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. What's he talking about? Were you here last night? Yeah, he's referring to what we preached about last night, the Mount of Transfiguration, where Peter and James and John were with Jesus on top of the high mountain. And while they were there, the Bible says Jesus became transfigured and his clothes began to shine like the, the, the sun and, his, uh, and his, uh, his face shone like the sun. His clothes were white as the light. And, and Moses and Elijah, that's what he's talking about. He says, you want to talk about a feeling or an experience? I saw Jesus glorified, he said. I heard God speak from heaven. Remember, God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Peter says, you want a feeling or an experience? I saw Jesus glorified. I heard God himself speak from heaven. But what does he go on to say in 2 Peter chapter 1? We have also a more sure word of prophecy whereunto you do well that you take heed as in, as in a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts knowing this first that no prophecy of the 
Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. What did Peter say? Trust a feeling? Trust an experience? No, he said, God gave you his word. Trust the word. And I've shown some people in the Bible that their feeling or experience was false, and they said, I don't care what the Bible says. I know what I felt. Uh Uh-oh. Did you just say you don't care what the Bible said? Listen, folks, God does not contradict himself in his word. We need to believe whatever the word of God tells us. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Don't trust some feeling or experience. The devil will give you any feeling or experience you're looking for because he knows you'll die and go to hell the whole time thinking you're going to go to heaven because, man, I had that experience. I had that feeling. Salvation isn't about feelings. It's a false foundation. Here's the last false foundation we'll mention tonight. What about bloodline or heritage? What do you mean by that, Brother Wim? Well, there are some people that believe that if they're born into a Christian family, that makes them a Christian, right? If your mom and dad were saved, that makes you a Christian as well. Hey, let me ask you a question, young folks. If a cat crawls into an oven and has kittens in there, do we call them biscuits? (laughs) Of course not. Just because a person is born into a Christian family does not make them a Christian, right? The Bible tells us that salvation is not handed down from our parents to us. There is something that is. What's that? Sin and the consequence of it. Death, Romans 5.12, wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sin. But what does the Bible tell us? Uh, Question, true or false? We're all God's children. Yeah, false. A lot of people want to believe it's true, but it isn't. Wait a minute. We're not all God's children? I thought we all were. No, listen. Go read the parable Jesus gave in Matthew 13 about the the man who planted wheat in his field, and at night an enemy planted tares in the field. What's the difference? Tares look just like wheat while they're growing. Even had the segmented heads like wheat when they're growing. But when when was it discovered that they were weeds, tares specifically, and not wheat? When it came time for the fruit to be on the top of the wheat, which made the real wheat bend over like the tops of wheats do when it's weighed down by the seeds, by the grain. And the the tares have none of that up there. So they're waving at you. Hi, I'm not not wheat. I'm a tare. (laughs) Jesus was asked to explain that parable. He said, the wheat are the children of the kingdom. The tares are the children of the wicked one. That's what every one of us is when we're born into this world. Children of the wicked one. We are all God's creation, but none of us is a child of God. Remember the religious people that were on this earth, the Pharisees, uh, were told by the Lord Jesus Christ in John 8, verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. And the lust of your father you will do. So when we're born into this world, we are not children of God. When we're born into this world, we are children of sin. We're children of Satan. We're children of disobedience. And we have to become a child of God. That's one of the reasons Jesus came. Why? So we can become a child of God. That's why it says in John chapter 1 and verses 11 through 13, He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. Listen, but as many as received Him, to them gave He power to what? become the sons of God, even in them that believe on his name, which were born, listen, not of blood. Verse 13. We always quote verse 12. We don't go on to verse 13. Which were born not of blood. What does that mean, not of blood? It's not through your bloodline or your heritage. You don't get it from your parents. Nor of the will of the flesh. It's not by our works and the sweat of our brow. Nor uh, of the of the of the. Uh, the will of man, that means our psychology, philosophy, religious ideology, and theology, that cannot save anyone but of God. But of God. That first thing, not of, what? Not of blood. I was preaching in the Fiji Islands, not this past time we were there last year, but the time before. I'd finished an evangelistic meeting one night at a church in Latoka, Fiji, and we'd seen a number of people saved, and we were loading up into our van with the missionaries to go back to their house for something to eat before we uh, went to bed that night, and there was a, oh, I just, a fellow maybe in his late 30s that came around the van and waved at us and asked the window to be rolled down, and when the missionary rolled the window down, he kind of stuck his head part of the way in, and he said, listen, he said, I always thought that since my father was a preacher and my grandfather was a pastor that I was a Christian. He said, I heard that preacher tonight say that salvation is not handed down from your parents. It's an individual decision every person has to make for themselves. And he said, tonight I ask the Lord Jesus to come into my heart and to save me. 
You can't get it from your parents. It's an individual decision. What does it say in John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that what? Whosoever believeth in him. That's a choice. That's a decision. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish but of everlasting life. What does it say in Romans 10.9, 10 and verse 13? That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. But with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, with the mouth confession and made into salvation. For whosoever shall what? Call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. No one else can do that for you. They can't light candles for you, get baptized for you, uh, or anything else for you. They can't pray prayers to save you. You must make that choice. Remember Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man... Hear my voice and will open the door. I will come in to him. It's a decision, an individual decision that every one of us must make. If your faith and trust is in your bloodline or in your heritage, look, we're going to see it in just a minute. Jesus said to Nicodemus he needed to be born again if he was going to see the kingdom of heaven. All right, so false foundations, what are they? Works, baptism, church membership or denomination, uh, feelings or experiences, bloodline or heritage. You say, preacher, then if, if, if those things don't show us we're saved or that we can't be saved by those, is there any way we can be sure if we die we go to heaven? Absolutely. Turn with me, if you would, for the remainder of our time tonight to the book of John in chapter 3. Very quickly, I want us to see this passage of Scripture. We've seen the, 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 the uh, uh, foundations listed there, false foundations, but I want us now to look at the firm foundation. The firm foundation, and I want you to see quickly tonight as we get ready to close, three things about the firm foundation. First, I want you to see it is the explained foundation. It's the explained foundation. God didn't leave us in the dark as to how we could know whether or not we're going to go to heaven. Look at what it says. John chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do the miracles that thou doest except God be with him. If you go out into society today and ask the average person who is Jesus Christ, they would say the same thing Nicodemus just did. He's a prophet of God. He was a good teacher, sent forth from God. He taught a lot of good things about God, did a lot of miracles in the name of God, but he wasn't really God. In fact, there are some who would like you to believe that neither Jesus nor the Bible claim that Jesus is God. They would be absolutely wrong about that because the Bible clearly claims that Jesus is God. Look at John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, speaking of a person, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He's the creator. We find out who that is later on in verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Who's the only begotten Son of God? Jesus Christ. The Bible claims that Jesus is God. It says, in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. If you know somebody that, 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 that has a religion like Jehovah's Witness or whatever, they believe there's only one God, Jehovah, and Jesus is not him. Take him to the last chapter of the book of Revelation, where it says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Ask them who's speaking there. Well, they'll say, that's Jehovah God, and I agree. Take them back to the first chapter of the book of Revelation. And John is talking to somebody who again says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Well, who is that? Again, it's the same identifier. So it has to be Jehovah God, right? Right, I agree. But keep reading because the one speaking goes on to say, I am he who was dead and am alive again. And I'm alive forevermore. Wait a minute. When did Jehovah ever die? Only when Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God in human flesh, went to an old rugged cross laid down his life, and died for you and me, and rose again. The Bible clearly claims that Jesus is God. Not only that, Jesus claimed that he was God. They tried to push him over a cliff in his own hometown of Nazareth because he was claiming to be God. When they came to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed, who came to arrest him? Well, you say there was Judas, and there were soldiers there, and there was the rabble that were there, or whatever. Well, uh, wait a minute. Where did the soldiers come from? Oh, well, there are a lot of people that mistakenly think they were Roman soldiers. They were not. They weren't? No. The Romans didn't get involved until the next day, remember, when, when Jesus was taken to Pilate's judgment hall. Well, then where did, the, where did the soldiers come from? They were temple soldiers under the command of the high priest. If you go back and read the account, the people who came to arrest Jesus that night were all Jews from the high priest and Judas who led them there. And they said to Jesus, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And he answered two words, what? 
I am. You say, well, big deal, Brother Webb. If I said, are you Barry Webb, you'd say I am. Yeah, but his I am is a little different than mine. His I am is the identifying name specifically from Jehovah God to the nation of Israel. Remember when God commissioned Moses to go back to Egypt and bring my people out of bondage? And Moses said, wait, when I go there and they ask me, who, what is his name? What am I supposed to say? What did Jehovah say? You tell them, I am that I am. Why is he called that? He's an eternal God. He's never had a beginning. He always he is today and he always will be. What does the Bible say about the Lord Jesus Christ? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Why? Because he is Emmanuel, God, with us. He is Jehovah God. The I am. And when the Lord Jesus Christ identified himself by that name to those people who came to arrest him, it says they went backward and fell to the ground just at the power of his name. By the way, why was he condemned to die? What could he have possibly done that would earn him the death penalty? I mean, remember, they, they brought in even false witnesses to try, to try to get him in trouble and have him sentenced, and they couldn't even agree on any charge. So what did they do? They just had to ask him the truth. Are you he that would come? They mean the Messiah, the God in human flesh. He said, I am. They said, you're worthy of death. You're blaspheming. You're claiming to be God. That's why they sentenced him to die. That was the reason they sentenced him to die. He was claiming to be God, clearly. Anybody who tells you Jesus was not claiming to be God and the Bible never claims that he was God is lying to you. Tell them to go out and read the Bible. Okay, because it's obvious that both he and the Word of God claim that he is God. But what did Jesus do about that statement when Nicodemus made it to him that night? You know what? He didn't pay attention to it. He brushed right past it and went straight for the heart of the problem. You know what the, know what the heart of the problem is? It's the problem of the heart. And Nicodemus had a heart problem, amen? He needed it to be clean. He needed to be saved. So the Lord Jesus says to Nicodemus, all right, look at the explained foundation, okay? This is the quintessential conversation that explains what salvation is, okay? If anybody know how to get to God's heaven, it ought to be God's son. And Nicodemus came wanting to know, and the Lord Jesus didn't hide the information from him. It says, Jesus answered and sent in him, verse 3, verily, verily, look at the language Jesus uses here, truly, Truly, I say unto thee, except, what does that word mean? Unless a man, what? Be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Wait a minute, stop there for a second. Born again, yes. Jesus said, if you're going to get to heaven, you've got to have a second birth. How many here have ever had a first birth? Some of you are not raising your hand. What, were you hatched or what? Okay. No, okay, everybody here had a first birth or you wouldn't be here tonight. That's a physical birth. Your first birth caused you to be born into the world a sinner. All of sin and come short of the glory of God. And we prove our sin by the sin we add by the, from the time we're born till the time that we die. Every one of us sins. What does it say in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15? Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then lust, when it can see, bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. We sin because we choose to sin, and we are worthy of the penalty of sin, which is death. All right? So the Bible tells us we have all sinned against God. We were born in sin. Do you realize if you're, going to, if you're only born once, you're going to die twice? That's right. You're going to die twice. You're going to die first physically. Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed unto men once to die. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 5, the living know that they shall die. Ezekiel 18, 4, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Every person who's born in sin is going to die one day. Or, or physically, we will die, but that's not all. The Bible says there's a real you that lives inside that body. And the real you, when you die, the, the body is buried in the grave, is going to go according to Jesus Christ and the true story he told in Luke chapter 16 to a place called hell, H-E-L-L. -L. Some people say, I believe in the Bible and I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in hell. Then you don't believe in the Bible or Jesus because Jesus said more in the Bible about hell than anybody else in the Bible did. In fact, in one passage, you said it was such a terrible place. If you had a sinful hand, foot, or eye that would keep you living in your sin, it'd be better to cut off your foot, whack off your hand, reach in and gouge out and throw away that eye, and only have one of each to go to heaven than have two of each to be cast into hell where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Those who die and go to hell will not be there forever. They'll be there until the day of what is called the great white throne judgment. We'll talk about that some tomorrow night. 
The Bible says in Revelation 20, verses 11 to 14, I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of the things that were written in the books according to the works, and the sea gave the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to the works, and death and hell, listen, were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. That's the death that never dies. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So if you've only been born once, you're going to die twice. You're going to die physically, and then you're going to die eternally, forever being burned in a lake of fire, but never being consumed. If I got what I deserved tonight, that's where I'd be. Because like everybody else in this room, I was born a sinner, and not because somebody forced me to be, but because I chose to be. The Bible tells us that we face that. So if you've been born once, you're going to die twice. But Jesus said, if you've been born a second time, you only have to die once. Physically. And maybe not even the once. If Jesus comes back first. Amen. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. My father often said before he went on to glory himself, I'm not looking for the undertaker. I'm looking for the upper taker. And if Jesus came tonight, those of us who are saved will never face eternal death, nor will we face physical death because we'll be taken. If you're here tonight and don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you'll face both physical death and an eternal death separated from God if you fail to trust Christ as your personal Savior. And so Jesus said, okay, it's the explained foundation. Nicodemus saith unto him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time in his mother's womb and be born? You mean I got to go back up inside my mom and come back out? Maybe with a loud noise on one end and no responsibility on the other? Verse 5, Jesus answered, verily, verily, there's that language again. Truly, truly, I say unto thee, except there's that word again, unless... A man being born of water, that's a physical birth, and of the spirit, that's a spiritual birth, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, right away, some people raise their hand and say, wait a minute, preacher, you added some words in there. You said physical and you said spiritual. How do you know that's what Jesus is talking about? How do you know that when Jesus said water, born of water, he did not mean water baptism? Well, first of all, because of all the other scriptures I gave you earlier that tell you that water baptism doesn't wash away anybody's sin. But how else do I know that that's not what he's referring to? Well, because the best commentary on your Bible, folks, is your Bible. Have a question about what a verse says? Look at the context first, the surrounding verses. If it isn't explained there, look further on in your Bible. It's likely explained progressively later on in the Bible. Here it happens to be explained in the very next two verses. What does it say? I'll read it just like I did before and keep going. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto thee, except or unless a man be born of water, that's a physical birth, and of the spirit, a spiritual birth, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, physical. That which is born of the spirit is spirit, spiritual. Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. Last year, my wife and I flew out at the beginning of the year to San Diego, California, where our youngest daughter and her family were because she was expecting our Seventh grandchild. All of my girls, both of my girls, have always been about a week to two weeks early with their babies. So we planned the schedule thusly. But this baby was a stickler for the details. And she was not about to come out until she was supposed to by the date. And so that date was like the night before we were supposed to leave California and come back again. So we were almost out of time to greet our new granddaughter. She was still not out yet. And in the middle of the night, about four o'clock in the morning, I was not awake. It did not wake me up. My wife said, my daughter stuck her head into the bedroom door where we were sleeping and said to her, I'm going to the hospital. Why? Because my, oh, every lady here knows, my water broke. Born of water. Okay. That's what it refers to in this passage of Scripture. The Bible says that's a physical birth. That is the beginning of a physical birth when the water breaks. So the Bible tells us that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said that ye must be born again. Look at verse 8. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the spirit. Look, you know, there are some religious leaders in Israel who didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in life after death. They were called Sadducees, and if they had no hope of the future, I guess that's why they were sad, you see. 
Well, Nicodemus wasn't a Sadducee, but he evidently had tendencies in that direction because the Lord Jesus has to say, look, Nicodemus, you don't see the wind, do you? You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it goes to, but you still believe in it. So believe in the spiritual, even though you can't see it. Nicodemus answered and said to him, verse 9, how can these things be? Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to him, art thou a master of Israel? And knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and you receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and you believe not, what earthly thing? What earthly things has he already talked about with Nicodemus? Birth and the wind, okay? If I have told you earthly things, and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Whoa, wait a minute, preacher. Some people say, what is he talking about now? Moses, serpents, wildernesses? What has that got to do with anything? Well, if you'd have been Nicodemus, you would have known exactly what he's talking about. He's referring to something that happened. You don't have to turn there, just jot it down. That happened to the people of Israel way back in the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 21. What happened there? It says the people of Israel were, were on their way to the promised land, <laughs> and they'd been brought out of 430 years of bondage. They'd seen the Egyptians destroyed in the Red Sea that they had just crossed through on dry ground. God was leading them by pillar of fire by, by night and a pillar of cloud by day. He was bringing the manna on the ground, and when they wanted meat, he brought quail. And he, even when there was no literal water around, brought them water out of rocks. But in verse 4 of number 21, it says the people committed sin against God. Sin was committed. They began to murmur and gripe and complain. Why have you brought us out into the wilderness to die? There is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light, light bread. Can you believe that? We ought to be able to. We all do the same thing. And now, one of us in this room tonight, including this preacher preaching to you who hasn't broken God's commandments, not because somebody forced us to, but because we chose to. We, we established that last night easily. So what happened? You find sentence carried out. Sin was committed, so there was a sentence carried out. It says, God sent fiery serpents among the people, and the serpents bit the people of Israel, and much people of Israel, guess what? Died. They had committed sin against God, and they were paying the wages of sin, which is death. All of sin, it comes short of the glory of God, and the wage of our sin, the wages of our sin is also death. Well, what happened then? Well, then we find salvation commended. Verse 7, the people repented. They said, we've sinned against God and we've sinned against Moses. Please forgive us and take away the serpents from us. What does the Bible say you and I need to do if we want to be saved? What do we need to keep in mind? 2 Peter 3, 9, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Acts 3.19, repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. He used the illustration on Sunday, I think, remember? What if I slapped you in the face as hard as I could and I said, oh, I'm sorry. And you said, okay, I'll forgive you. And I hit you again. And we did that like five or six times. How many really believe I'm sorry? You wouldn't believe a word. Why? Because if I was sorry, I would stop doing what I said I was sorry for. And a lot of people that want to say, oh, man, I don't want to fry in a lake of fire for eternity. I don't want to go to hell, but I don't want to change the way I'm living either, man. I want to keep living in my sin and my wickedness and my self-centeredness and my drugs and my alcohol or whatever else. I just want to know if I die, I go to heaven. So what did the preacher say to pray? Oh, yeah, dear Jesus, please save me. Whew. Now they prayed the magic words and the magic prayer. I can go out and keep living in my sin because if I die, I get to go to heaven. I don't believe so, friend. Why? That's not repentance. <laughs> Jesus said himself in Luke 24, verses 46 and 47, it was meet that she be crucified and buried and the third day rising in and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations. It's interesting this illustration right here in John chapter 3 because there's some people that don't believe repentance has anything to do with salvation. In fact, I had a fellow walk up to me one time and said, do you th do you, Brother Webb, do you believe you could lead somebody to Christ from the, the gospel of John alone? I said, sure. He said, well, then you can't preach repentance. I said, why? He said, because the word repent is not found anywhere in the, book of God, in the gospel of John. So I answered him two things. Number one, there's a reason why God gave us four gospels, not just one. And it happens to be in the other three. But don't say that repentance is not found in the gospel of John because that is exactly what is in the dead center of the illustration that Jesus Christ himself is choosing to use as the illustration for how a person is born again. The people repented. Some of say, well, if there is repentance, repentance just involves what God you worship, turning from any false God to the Lord God. Excuse me, 
What are these people in the illustration? Jesus Christ chose himself to show what we do to be saved. What, what, what are they repenting of? Idolatry? No. Worshiping a golden calf? No, no, no. That was a different story. They're repenting of their sin. They're repenting of their sin. When you and I repent, it's a turning. It's a turning from our sin, our self-righteousness, and any other salvation we trusted in to turn to the Savior, the Lord Jesus. I said this earlier. You might want to jot it down if you didn't get it then. Repentance is not a work that we do. Repentance is a change of heart and mind that results by the power of God in a change in our life. God does not expect us to change our lives to make ourselves better so he'll save us. He'll change us after we've been saved. But he requires that when we come to him for that salvation, there be a willingness for us to allow him to do that. Have you ever repented? If not, you've never been saved. All right? The people repented. Then what happened? Well, then God said to Moses, make a brazen serpent and lift it upon a pole and announce to the people that if they'll look to the serpent, they can be healed. So God himself provides the way of salvation. Okay? What was it? He had them make a brass serpent, lift it upon a pole. Uh, brass is a symbol of judgment. Serpent is a symbol of sin. Sin judged on Jesus Christ who was going to be lifted up on a cross. That's what it's a picture of. So God said, lift up that, that serpent, and anyone who will look to the serpent can be healed. Now let's say you're living back in that day. Okay, All of you are living back in the day. You've been bitten by a fiery serpent. You're dying right now. And you hear the announcement from Moses, look to the serpent, and you can be healed. And you look at her, and you say, look at the serpent. Ew. They're disgusting. That's the stupidest thing I've heard in my life. I'm not looking at any dumb serpents. Would you be healed? No. Why? You did not believe. You didn't believe. What did Jesus go on to say in this passage of Scripture? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whosoever what? Joins the right church? No. Gets baptized? No. Goes on a pilgrimage? No. Speaks in tongues? No. Whosoever what? Believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever what? Believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 36 of the chapter. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. So repent, yes. Then what? Believe. The people had to believe. Oh, I wasn't finished with you ladies yet. Okay? You've heard the announcement. Look to the serpent and you're going to be healed. And you look at her and you say, isn't that wonderful? God made a way for us to be healed. All we have to do is look at the serpent. But you never look. Would you be healed? No. You see, you had to act on the faith you said you had and look to receive, to accept that healing. The Bible says what about salvation? Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What did it say in one of the verses we quoted earlier? Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the what? Gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So let me put it to you this way. Uh, we were just in Decatur, Alabama last week for meetings. We were in that same church a number of years. Well, actually, it wasn't that church. There's another good church in town there. Uh, we were in a church there and had finished a Sunday night service. I took my family out to a steak and shake restaurant down the road after church to get something for, to eat. And walked into the restaurant. There was another family on the other side of the restaurant, all dressed up in church clothes, but they were not from the church that I had just finished preaching in. But as I looked at the man, he looked a lot like a younger evangelist friend of mine that I knew. So I remembered that that younger evangelist friend of mine told me he had a brother who pastored a church in that town. So I went over and asked, and indeed, that's who it was. So I took my family over, and we introduced ourselves to them. And we did not stay but just a minute because you know how you hate to have somebody stand there and talk while your food gets cold on your table. So we just invited him to the meetings that week and, and told him we knew his brother and went back and sat down, ordered our food, and we were eating. And of course, they'd been there before us, so they finished first, and they came by and, and, and said goodbye to us, said they'd see us one night during the meetings. And then they went out to the vehicle, and he paid their bill, and they left. Did not think anything else about that till after we had finished eating and fellowship a little while longer. And my family got up and went out to our truck. And I got up and walked up to the cashier and handed her the bill and the money with which to pay it. And she looked me in the face and said, I'm sorry, sir, I can't accept your money. I said, no, ma'am, that's highly unusual. Most cashiers I've met in my lifetime have been more than happy to accept my money. 
He said, well, I'm sorry, sir. I can't accept your money. I said, why? There's, 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 is there something wrong? I mean, look, that, that this is the, there must be a mistake. This is the bill, and there's the money to pay for it. I just as soon you make change, I don't want to have to wa wash dishes or mop a floor or something before you let me go home. She said, no, I'm sorry. I can't accept your money. I said, why? What's wrong? She said, oh, nothing's wrong. She said, you know the other family you were talking to earlier tonight on the other end of the restaurant? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, well, when they left here tonight, they not only paid for their meal, they paid for your meal as well. And I could have stood there and said, no, 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 I have to pay something. That doesn't feel right to me. I feel like oh, I have to do something. But look, there's nothing I could pay because there was nothing that I owed. The price had already been paid. All I could do was gratefully accept what had been paid for for me. You understand that's what salvation is? It's a gift. When Jesus said on the cross, to telestai, it means it is finished in English, which means paid in full. Same words were used by tax collectors in that day when a bill was paid in full. And when Jesus said it was paid in full, that meant he had paid in full your sin debt and my sin debt. And all we need to do is to turn to him and accept what he already graciously paid for for us. That's why it says it's a gift. And remember it says in Romans 10, 13, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you've never accepted that gift tonight, you need to repent, yes, Turn from your sin, your self-righteousness, and anything else you've ever trusted to save you. Turn to Jesus Christ. Then what? Believe that Jesus Christ is God, that he came from heaven, that he died in your place, that he rose again, that only he can save you, and he will if you'll ask. And then three, ask him. Ask him. Call on him tonight. God, I'm a sinner. I'm sorry for that sin, but I believe that Jesus died in my place and rose again. And right now, I want to ask you to come into my life, forgive my sin, save my soul. You, you mean, preacher, if I do that, God would save me? Absolutely. It's right there in the Bible. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It is the explained foundation. If anybody ought to know how to get to heaven, it ought to be Jesus. Amen? It's the explained foundation. Let me give you the last two things here before we pray, and we're going to pray very quickly. Secondly, not only is the explained foundation, it's the exclusive foundation. It's the exclusive foundation. What do you mean by that, Brother Webb? What about all the other religions of the world? Are you being disingenuous if you tell somebody the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ? What about Buddha? What about Muhammad? What about Krishna? What about works? What about baptism? What about these other things? Are you being unkind? No. It has nothing to do with being kind or unkind to anybody. It has to do with being biblical. We can only tell people what the Bible say, says. What does the Bible say? Acts 4.12. Neither is there. Are you jotting these verses still down? Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus said himself in John 14.6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father. What? But by me. In John 10, verse 1, he said, He that cometh unto him at the door of the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. You say, well, what's the door? No, wrong question. Who's the door? He said in John 10, verse 9, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Christ Jesus. The Bible says there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It's not the evangelist, it's not the pastor, it's not the priest, it's not the pope, it's not even Mary. You ever read what Mary said herself in the Gospel of Luke? Some religions want to say that Mary can get you to heaven too. You can pray to Mary. Mary will get you there. They make her a co-redemptress. That's why they had to come up with their own doctrine of immaculate conception. Ask the average person coming out of those churches, what does the immaculate conception mean? And they think you mean the virgin birth. Oh, Jesus was born of a virgin. No, that's the virgin birth. What's the immaculate conception? It's the doctrine teaching that Mary was born without any sin. Therefore, she can be a co-redemptress. Well, let me tell you something. Listen to what Mary said herself about that. She said in her thanksgiving for God choosing her to be the mother of the Messiah, my soul doth magnify the Lord and my spirit hath rejoiced. Listen, in God, my Savior. Do you realize that if Mary needed a Savior, she was a sinner like everyone else is? And the only way you could get to God and the only way she can get to God is through Jesus Christ. He is the exclusive 
foundation. No other way but through him. And then finally tonight, praise God for this one. He's the eternal foundation. By the way, that other verse was 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. One, one God and one mediator. The man Christ Jesus. But he is also the the eternal foundation. There are a lot of people who struggle with that assurance of their salvation. Well, preacher, I've, I, I, there's some people I talk to. Have you ever asked the Lord to come into your heart? Yes, I've done that many times. Uh, wait a minute. If you've done it many times, then you don't understand what salvation is. There's a reason why Jesus used the illustrations he did in this passage of Scripture. He talked about birth. Okay? Uh, when you were born into this world, physically, you got two ships. And you're not even a sailor, brother, even if you do like ships. Okay? You got two ships. What kind of ships? Number one, relationship. And number two, fellowship. What does that mean? Well, when you're born physically in this world, you had a relationship. You became somebody's child and they became your parents, right? Then as you got to get older and you got to talk to them, they talk to you, get to know each other, then you have fellowship. Now, what happens, let's just say, let's just say, what happens if your parents tell you not to play ball in the house? Ever heard that? One, that rule. Ever had that rule at your place? Yeah, everybody does, right? That's, that's a normal rule. Don't play ball in the house. But let's say you're not playing ball in the house. You're just going to pitch a baseball up at the ceiling fan to see how many pitches it might get before the ceiling fan gets a hit. And it gets one. Crash right through the picture window in the front of your house. Ooh. Did you obey your parents? No. Does that mean they rushed out of the house and said, that's it, you're no longer our child. You are out of this family. No, listen, even if they went through the legal paperwork to disown you, you can drag them down to the hospital for a DNA test which says, guess what? You're my parents. Nothing can ever change that relationship. Ah, but if you've done that, is that the time to go ask mom and dad for 10 bucks to go to the store and buy something? Uh, no. <laughs> Why? Because they're not very happy with you now. And as long as you are, look, you, you have not lost your sonship, your relationship, okay? You've lost your fellowship. You've graduated from being an obedient child to a disobedient child. Remember what I said earlier this week? This comes around again to this. God does not spank the next door neighbor's kids, but he does discipline his so look, if I disobeyed God and I lost my salvation because of some sin I did, then God's not going to chase me because he doesn't discipline the next door neighbor kids. The very fact that God says as many as I love, I rebuke and chase and be zealous, therefore and repent. The very fact that if I do sin against God, he doesn't let me go off in my sin, but he rebukes me. And if I don't listen to the rebuke, he chastens me. Is proof positive I didn't lose my relationship. I lost my fellowship because if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me, right? If I'm disobedient to God, I can pray all I want to. God's not going to listen. Why? Because I'm disobedient. What do I need to do? Well, if you were out on the outs with mom and dad, what would you need to do? Go and ask them to forgive you. And then wait two weeks before you ask for the 10 bucks to go to the store and buy something. Because it takes parents a while to forget sometimes. But look, the Bible says we do the same thing with him. We go to him, we ask his forgiveness, and he forgives and forgets. He will not remember our sin against us again. What did David pray in Psalm 51? Restore unto me thy salvation, O Lord. No, he said, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. David, not, David had not lost his relationship with God. He had lost his fellowship with God. And he asked for that to be restored by forgiveness. Same thing is true of every one of us. So can I lose my salvation after I've been saved? Is there something I can do to make God take away my salvation that will cause me to have to ask him to save me again and again and again and again? No, listen, jot down these last verses I want to give to you tonight. First of all, 1 John 5, 13, 1, we know it says, These things are written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. But listen, John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30. Jesus speaking, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them, what? Eternal life. How long is eternal? If it stops tomorrow, it's not eternal. If it ends next week, it's not eternal. I give unto them eternal life. It's forever. It doesn't have an ending. I give them the eternal life, and they shall, what next? Never perish. What does the word never mean? It means not ever 
If tomorrow I did something that caused me to perish, that would be the day I ever lost my salvation and ever perished. God says, I cannot ever perish. Neither shall any man. By the way, that's anybody in all of mankind. I've had some people say to me, well, nobody else can pluck you out of God's hand, but you can pluck yourself out of God's hand. I'm sorry, you're not part of humankind? You're not any man? Any man? Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. No man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Do you understand, fellas, young people here tonight, that if you're going to lose your salvation or get out of God's salvation, you have to understand, you and I are saved by Christ. We're in Him. He says He's in God, and we're sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. Read Ephesians 4, verse 30. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed on the day of redemption. If you're going to get out of God's salvation, you have to overthrow God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Think you can do that? Good luck. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says, I, verse 12, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed against the day. Look, if I had to keep me saved, <laughs> forget it, man. I'm a goner. But I couldn't save me. And if I can't save me, I can do nothing to keep me. If Jesus Christ is the only one who could save me, then Jesus Christ is the only one who can keep me. He said, I know whom I have, pers- I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that Day. Listen, isn't it an interesting thing when you live in a society of people who can trust a bank to keep their money, but they can't seem to trust God to keep their souls? Nothing that's ever been committed to God has ever been lost. Why do we let the devil convince us that we've somehow lost our salvation when the Bible says that's an impossible thing? Because I don't save me. Jesus saved me. I can't keep me. He has to keep me. Frankly, you and I can't even live a Christian life. He has to do that too. The just shall live by faith. We're saved by grace through faith, and the just shall live by faith. Faith is not what you and I do. It's the attitude we take towards somebody else that allows them to accomplish something for us on our our behalf. My faith allows the Lord Jesus Christ to reckon his death, burial, and resurrection good for my salvation. But it's also my faith in Christ regarding my security, not just my salvation, that allows Jesus Christ to keep me through all eternity saved. And to live in me as well. He's the life he gives us. All right? So the Bible says that we can trust him. What about Philippians 1 verse 6? Being confident of this very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And there are many other verses we could look at tonight in the word of God as well. We need to go tonight. I want you to understand. Anybody that says you can lose your salvation is lying to you. Because God is the one who saves us. Christ saves us. He keeps us throughout all of eternity. I can never lose that salvation. I'm his sheep. I heard his voice. I follow him. He gives unto me eternal life. I can never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. Nobody is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. It's the explained foundation. It's the exclusive foundation. And it is the eternal foundation. So when I ask you tonight, seriously, when I ask you tonight at the beginning of the message, if you died right now and you stood at the gate of heaven and somebody asked you, why should we let you in here? What did you answer? What did you answer? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ solid rock I stand that's why the cross is on the, cro- on, the, on the rock on Christ the solid rock I stand all other ground is sinking sand let's bow together for a word of prayer tonight